Hello, welcome to Creative Conversations, the Tiger Spirit podcast exploring creativity in all its diverse forms. I'm your host, Yang Mei Ui. I'm a multimedia author. Today, in this episode, my guest is Zahara Othman, a Malaysian freelance journalist based in London, and we'll be talking about her work covering news and current affairs, and also her fascination with love stories across cultures. Zahara, welcome to Creative Conversations. Thank you, Yang Mei. Now, as a journalist, uh, you're from Malaysia, you're reporting to Malaysian media on UK and European news. Um, can you just tell us some of the stories, the major stories that you've covered recently? Well, um, I've been here for 38, 39 years, I think. And um, there has been many, many uh, interesting stories, some not, not very um not very nice, but as a journalist, you do have to cover them. But I find there are a lot of interesting stories that I've covered and it has opened up a whole new world. Now, um, the latest would be uh, right now, I'm in the midst of covering uh, a story about a Malaysian um, who came to London and he suffered a stroke attack. And he is now at the hospital. And there's a big, big interest in his story because he came here with a travel insurance, but I think there's some dispute and his bill has gone up to nearly £70,000. But, you know, as a Malaysian, fellow Malaysian, I went there to do some coverage. And with that coverage, um, you do get some publicity. And with the GoFundMe campaign, he's... Um, up till now, his uh, the collection has been about forty forty seven thousand pounds, and that goes a long way, you know, to to pay to help pay for the bills and also to 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 repatriate him home. Yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't yeah. it? Because you think your insurance is, uh, you you buy your travel insurance, you think it's okay, and then suddenly something happens and there's a problem. But what I find interesting about this story is the kindness of strangers, people helping, Certainly. Man, you know. Certainly. I, I, I have had the experience with one other patient who came here. He actually collapsed at Heathrow Airport and he didn't have um, uh, insurance. But when I went into the hospital to to visit him, I took his picture. I I quietly videoed him, and and uh, they started a GoFundMe. As I was walking back to to the station, someone called me and said, "Is this a genuine story?" I said, "Yes." When I left him, he was still in a coma, and he said, "I will donate some money." I said, "How much?" Because at that time they had only ten thousand. He said, five thousand." And I just cried by the roadside. I just cried. Yes, because this came from someone who hardly knew me. He knew me as a journalist from someone else. And this is to show you Malaysian is not, they are not as divided. This man who called me is a Chinese dato. And he said to me, Zara, he said, I don't care about the race of this person. I don't care about his religion. I'm, I'm donating as a human being to another human being. Yeah. 
that made me cry. Oh, I'm crying now. This is such a heartwarming yes. story. And I think, you know, in these times, these very troubling times where there is yes. a division within uh, all kinds of different societies and countries, what a heartwarming story. Yes, if you look at the GoFundMe page, yeah, if you go to uh, help bring um, Uncle Sarum back, you will see people, Malaysians, Chinese, Indian, Malays, all saying, let's bring Uncle Sarum back. And they paid 20, 20 pounds, 10 pounds, 5 pounds. These are all the little sum that added up and make the huge amount. And it is so heartwarming to, to see that, you know. Yes, indeed. Now, in addition to personal stories that you cover in the news, what other stories uh, come come to mind? Of course, there's uh, there will be visits by the ministers and and interesting stories about Malaysians who have done well. For example, those who are trying to do something like cross the swim across the, the English Channel, and um, Malaysians who pass through London to pack, to hitchhike, or to do all these wonderful things, you know, uh, around the world. They pass through London. I love to hear their, uh, about their journeys, you know, because when you talk to someone with interesting journeys in their life, they take you on. I like to latch on to their journeys, you know, and, and, uh, and it would seem as though I'm part of their, their story. And um, the other thing I've covered... Is um, well, I do go to um, the continent. I went to Amsterdam, uh, Rotterdam, when the crash happened, MH17. So I was there within a few days. Uh, I was in Rotterdam. Uh, that must have I been knew. quite a harrowing uh, story. To yes, come. yes, it, it was indeed. I was uh, when I heard about it, and I knew that. And Rotterdam would know some of the victims. And true enough, the friend I contacted said, um, one of the victims was his tenant. So I went over there. I slept in the house where uh, the one of the Malaysian victims, the, the victims of the uh, crash uh, stayed. And from there, I covered the stories on the, you know, from the human interest angle. It, it was It was hard. Uh, being in the house where he stayed, where he slept, where he cooked, and he met his friends. And uh, there was also a Chinese family. I went to her restaurant, uh, the family from Penang. She uh, she had her mother visiting her, and uh, she uh, they were going home. They decided to take MAS. And that was when it happened. So when I went to talk to the son, the surviving member of the family, he said that they were going to be a, a march in remembrance of this lady, Jenny, and her husband. I didn't think that they were that famous or well-known among the, the the Dutch community. But the day I was there, the march was by about 500 people led by the mayor of, of Rotterdam. Oh. Everyone in white carrying... Uh, a lily of flowers, white flowers, and 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 the candle. It was I can't I can't describe it. I can't describe it. They they were part of the community. So that's the kind of thing. And after that, I went back to uh, uh, to uh, a 
place called Gulzarayan, the, the base where they brought back the wreckage and they assembled the, the pieces that they found of the plane. That was another difficult part, difficult um, assignment to do because when they assembled the wreckage, they invited us as journalists to go in, to walk up to the, to the plane. And I walked up, I was very hesitant. I walked up and then when I saw the seats for the, the captain and the pilot and his uh, members of the, the crew, I just broke down there. Because you can see where the shrapnel from the, from the uh, what is it? it, where it exploded. You know, it exploded outside, but the missile, the, the shrapnel from the missile just went through the plane and people died within oh, seconds, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, as as a journalist, um, you uh, you're now in your sixties. Um, yes. Are a Muslim woman, and you dress in the traditional dress with the tudong, the the headscarf. Yes. Um, and uh, when you went to cover this uh, um, uh, this this horrific scene. Um, uh, and you're quite a small lady, uh, as I know in person. Uh, how was it? You know, how how do you how do you cover these these events where you, there are lots of journalists, there's you know lots of things going on. Surprisingly, there's no problem actually. I remember the day that uh, they brought back uh, the bodies uh, to to another Einhoven, another military base. Yeah? So I was actually running along all these big German, Dutch journalists or men, and I was running along with them trying to pitch my, my tripod. And I was just like, my God, I should be giving this up because I'm already 60, you know, <laughs> and I can't be. But it's the story that, that, that really makes me want to go on, you know. So... You, you you put your tripod there and you stand your ground and you want the story. You want to, to film everything. You want to get everything because you cannot miss anything, you know. So that that is nothing. I mean, they do not look down on me or anything because I'm a Muslim woman. But what was there was another incident, you know, when uh, the bombings and the explosions that happened in in um, in London. Yes, seven. Now seven. that was that was very challenging because I have never had any any prejudice or anyone looking at me in in a negative way because I was wearing the tudung, the hijab. But when the incident happened in the, at Russell Square, you know, remember when the bus uh, exploded in yes. Russell Square and in King's Cross? So I went with my cameraman. I was doing television then. I went with my cameraman. And uh, I went to King's Cross, no problem. But as we were walking back to the car, I was getting into the car and my cameraman said, Zara, get into the car quickly. And I did just in time because there was a, a can of beer hauled at me, but it splashed onto the, 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 the windscreen. And uh, I knew it was aimed at me. You know, and I was I was quite shaken after that because I thought, you know, I've never had this before. So one day I was taking a bus um, somewhere in Green Park and then I it was a, quite a crowded bus. And I look across and there was this gentleman sitting down. And uh, I recognized him instantly because he was one of the um, the 
hostages. Uh, in fact, he was held captive by the extremists in Lebanon. His name is Terry Wakes. He was kept. Yeah, he was kept in solitary confinement for five years, you know. Yes. Immediately, I thought, you know, he gave me a very kind smile. And then when he got down, I followed him. <laughs> I followed him and I said, hello, what's it? I'm a journalist. And, you know, everything started pouring out about this can of beer that was hurled at me, about this woman who, 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 uh, I was sit. I went to take a seat near her on the bus, and she gave me a dirty look and walked away. I said, "You know, I've never had this experience before." And he said to me, "You know, for someone who had who was held captive by Muslims for five years, yeah, mm. he had he had no anger in him." He said to me, "Allow them this anger; it will go, it will go." He said, "You know." And that was what he did. The anger went. He was still doing his work to 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 bring to bring peace in the Middle East. You know how how beautiful. Yes, you know? indeed. And I think you know the the stories that you've just shared with us. We it's a mixture uh, of heartwarming kindness and also people yes. with their own uh, issues and prejudices. But actually, mm. overall, um, I like to think that most people are kind and most people can yes. and most people can let it go. Yeah, Londoners are, are very tolerant. They are. Yeah, and um, I think, you know, people across the world as well, just from what you've you've described uh, about what happened in Rotterdam and, uh, of course, Malaysians mm. across the world. Um, so thank you for sharing those very um, uh, quite uh, some hard, hard-hitting stories, some heartwarming stories from your journalistic career. Um, but actually, well, you've told me that your real passion <laughs> is searching mm-hmm. out stories from the past. Now, that's interesting yeah. for a journalist who covers current affairs. You're interested also in the past. Can can you tell us something about um, your, your interest in, in the past and some of those stories? Yeah, it, I think it was quite by accident, my real passion in searching for stories from the past. And uh, what an interesting journey it has been for me, discover, uh, discovering the past and finding part of our collective history on these British shores, you know. So when I first arrived in London in 1979, and that's a long time ago, I was introduced to the world of Malay sailors. Now that opened up a whole new adventure for me as a journalist. Now, so, so sailors from yeah? Malay, Malay sailors from Malaysia? From from Malaya, Malaya, you know, Malaya we, we go we go back to maybe the thirties or forties, you know. So um, when uh, when and, and sorry, just to clarify time, for yeah. just to clarify for our listeners who don't know the difference between Malaya and Malaysia, Malaya, yeah. what the country was known as during British rule and after independence, um, uh, Malaya became Malaysia. Yes, that's right. That's right. So um, when we first arrived in London, we were visited by my husband's uh, uncle. Now, he had left Malaya, uh, Malaysia by then, um, maybe 25 years before that, to join the um, British Merchant Navy ships, you know. So in those days, uh, Malay or Malayan sailors were very much sought after by the British merchant navy ships in the 30s, maybe earlier. You know, they were young men 
And uh, somehow, most of them from Trungganu or Malacca, and they were as young as about 17, 16. So they would go to uh, Singapore, where the British merchant navy ships were docked. Now, they knew, because word got around, even without the internet in those days, word got around that if you want to see the world, go to Singapore, get yourself registered as um, deckhands, as as a, a crew, as a carpenters on the ship, and you see the world without having to pay anything. So, Malay sailors or Malayan sailors were then very popular because they were known to be very hardworking. No drinking, maybe they drank a bit, but they were very, very good. They were very disciplined. So, British um, captains were always uh, on the lookout for them. Now, those who did not manage to get registered because somehow they couldn't qualify, they would stow away. They would hide in the below the decks, you know, and then those who managed to to travel uh, to to sail the high seas, uh, there were some very naughty stories, you know, about the sailors, and unsurprisingly, so they would what they would do is whenever a ship docks somewhere and they think that that place is interesting, you know, for example, anywhere around the world, they would just jump ship. Jumping ship is a very popular hobby of theirs, you know. They would, <laughs> and then they would join another ship that come along, you know. So it's so interesting. And some of them had had been uh, sailed during the war because, of course, the British merchant navy ships would uh, be sending supplies to the warships, you know. So some of them. Uh, you know, they they would sail in rough seas. And one one ex-sailor that I interviewed, uh, who was known as Pakchip, Pakmit Carpenter, because he was a carpenter, his ship was uh, torpedoed by the Germans. And uh, he was floating on, uh, just hanging on to uh, a plank of wood for three days and three nights, just in the high seas you know, at, uh, in the Bay of Biscay, yeah. And then he was rescued by another merchant navy ship and lo and behold, another Malay sailor. <laughs> and, then, and then, to make the story more interesting, he, he, he went to stay with this Malay sailor and got married to the, to the daughter of this Malay sailor who was, of course, a half Malay and a half English, you know. Uh, so, and then, uh, so he <laughs> came to stay with the Malay uh, sailor and met his daughter in yeah. England, in the UK. Yeah, yeah, and got married. Oh, wow. And so, then so when I to... met up with him again, yes, when I met up with him again, I said, why, why didn't you go, go back? And he said to me, you know, in Malaya, he said, those in Malaya, they thought that I was dead because what they did was they, they had a bowl of water, they sprinkled some flowers in the water, cut a lime, and they said, oh, he's dead. <laughs> so, so a kind of um, um, a ritual divination. That's no, day. you see, he thought, he thought, when I interviewed him, he was in 19, in the 1980s. So he thought Malaya never moved on. You know, to them who left, Malaya never moved on. 
Mm. You know, so uh, he he thought that here it is better. You can call the ambulance. They will come here in five minutes. In Malay in Malaya, to know an illness, they would just sprinkle something in the water. I see. So so he settled here <laughs> because he he was looking for a good life, like. Yes, yes, yes. They enjoyed themselves there. The stories they told me, my God. Yeah, wait, wait, and, wait, 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 wait. Let's just pause here because there's something quite interesting mm-hmm. about this story. It's okay. made into a film, hasn't it? Yes, yes. So, uh, um, and, and, and people can go and watch it on Netflix. So can you tell us about yes. that? Yes. Now it is called Pulang. Pulang, uh, P-U-L-A-N-G in English. It means to return home, yeah? Now, this is the story about um, a man in search of his father who left him and his mother in Singapore because he wanted he, he worked as a sailor on the British Merchant Navy ship. Although the father said, I will come home, you know, uh, I'm just going to look for for a job that will change our life. And he never did. So what happened was he went searching for the father. In the the real story is that he went searching for the father when he was uh, he got a scholarship to come to study England, and then uh, he he contacted the father. Before that, his father never contacted him, uh, except for postcards from Tokyo, postcards from Hong Kong, postcards from anywhere, saying that. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, with no forwarding address. But the last postcard he received was from Liverpool saying, I'm in Liverpool, I've stopped sailing. So he decided to go to Liverpool to look for his father, so which he did. This, this film is a, is a fictionalised story that incorporates... Some, some, oh, yes, and of course is, it and your, your research is also incorporated in this film, isn't it? Yes, yes, because when the, the executive producer wanted to to look more into it, he, he found my blog, he found my writings on the Malay sailors uh, that was published in the New Straits Times and my blog as well. So he found that and he contacted me and he had used some of the episodes in his uh, film, How yeah. Exciting. So that that is quite rewarding. And then to to do, uh, they also did um, the making of Pulang, and that was where I came in, and they brought me the a team of documentary makers came, took me back to Liverpool, where we met up with an old sailor who had who was already a very close friend of mine. He's in his eighties, and uh, we. We we talked about those people who, who who made our lives very very interesting by sharing their their stories with me and um and he shared his stories. And it so was can, very can, fascinating. Can, can people watch the documentary online at all? I think so. The co- documentary would be um, on the making of Pulang, and the movie itself can be you can find it on Netflix. I think. Yes, definitely. I've 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 got it on my watch list on on Netflix. Yes. Um, yes. Okay. Now we um we spent some time think uh, talking about Malay uh, men who've come over to the UK and the Malay sailor who yeah. married uh, a half English girl. Now you are also interested in the British soldiers uh, who went yes. up to Malaya and met their wives there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, but before that, can I just add a bit more interesting stories about the life of the Malay sailors? Because their interesting life is not just was not just in on the high seas, but also on land. 
can I add a bit more? Because between sailing, what they would do is they would be in the books of uh, uh, an acting agent, you know, called Madam Sin. And this lady was based somewhere in Tottenham Court Road, I think, near Charlotte Street. So they would be on the her list as extras for movies. You see, after the war, <laughs> after the war, people, filmmakers were very interested in stories about the war, you know, about the Japanese occupation. And the Malays or Malayans at that time, of course, they looked like Japanese, you know. So Batman Tokyo, who was then the the um, uh, the president of the Malay Club, where the the sailors uh, used to meet up. Now, he was one of the soldiers, the Japanese soldiers, in the movie called A Town Like Alice, you know? <laughs> yes, I know so that one. This, oh, yeah. So, you know, it's very interesting. So, uh, they, they really enjoyed their life, did they? And he also acted with uh, Simon Templer in the same. Uh, oh, yes. And many others. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they, they, any opportunities to work, they work. They work hard, yeah. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Right, we need to move on now. British soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. Now, I think I'm I, being away from London is bringing me back and back and back into the my life in, in, in Malaysia or Malaya. My interest in them started when I, I met up with a veteran British soldiers at events organized by the Malaysian High Commission here in London. So I got to know them and they would talk about nothing back, uh, nothing more than uh, when I was back in Malaya, when I was in Malaya, things like that, you know. They love Malaya so much. In fact, now, they would make trips to Malaysia once a year. They're now in their 80s. Anyway, my interest in them, and what's interesting I found, is that, you know, when they went there, they went as 18-year-old soldiers. They knew nothing about Malaya. They, don't, they didn't even know where Malaya was. So some of them would end up in Penang, in Malacca. Now, Maybe they had never seen any Orientals, any Malayans before. One or two of them would, would uh, um, uh, see a, a Chinese girl and fall helplessly in love with this Chinese girl with the long hair and short skirts. So I have been, <laughs> I've been pursuing these couples and um, I found three or four of them. They met when they were 18 and now they're in the 80s feel very much in love living in in England. Wow, wonderful. How romantic. Yes. <laughs> a, a few of them, some of them um, uh, who I interviewed, uh, about two of them worked as Amma, you know, uh, maids in the, in the homes of um, Australian soldiers. But they met, they would meet at clubs and all that. And of course, all of them married not without resistance and objections from their family because the Chinese uh, would believe, you know, you cannot marry the Angmo. <laughs> the white man. That would be, yeah, the white man. And one one couple I interviewed, she got married only after five years. Of five years, the soldier was saying, marry me, marry me, marry me. And she married him, but because uh, she, uh, the father was so very much against the marriage, she told the father that she had accepted an offer to do nursing in Australia. So they got married. 
she went off with her husband, uh, uh, who was then based in Germany. She would write a letter to her father through her former employer, who was a British, uh, uh, an Australian soldier in Australia. So the letter would be forwarded from Australia to the father in Penang. So the father thought, yes, I've got this letter from my daughter in Australia. How bizarre is that? How naughty. <laughs> yes, yes. But after that, it's a love story. Yes, yes. It is. I, I've heard so many love stories. It's just so, so wonderful, you know. Oh, wonderful. Mm. So now, um, uh, so tell, tell, tell us about your roots. You're from, from My Ghana. roots? No, no, I'm from Kedah. Kedah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Kedah. Uh-huh. I'm from Alostar, Kedah. My husband is from Trenganu. I see. Yeah, I think that's where you got it. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, uh, I was born in Alostar a long, long time ago. And just and, to clarify uh, again for our listeners who don't know Malaysia very well, Kedah is a state in northern Malaysia and Trenganu is yes. on, on the eastern uh, eastern side of North the East. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. And um, I was uh, schooled in a convent. You know, in those days, we had uh, convent schools, and uh, I now appreciate very much the discipline that we um, given in uh, in the convent. Um, and then um, I did my journalism studies, and after that, after just about uh, one and a half years working with the New Straits Times, I got married, and we came to London because. Um, uh, my husband was tasked to open up the New Street Times office in London. So I was given a no-pay leave to be here with him. Just after two weeks of getting married, we found ourselves in London. Wow. So wait, so is, is there a romantic story about how you guys met? Of course, in the office. Oh, so the office I worked in. Two journalists. Yes. And then, um, uh, well, we got we met up uh, at the New Straits Times uh, office in, in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur. And then within a few months, uh, he was um, sent off to, to London to be a correspondent. And I was sent off to Penang to be uh, in the Penang office. But I suppose it bloomed there, you know, those letters that took months to arrive. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but it took like, weeks to arrive but we were writing to each other uh, like 20 pages of letter writing oh. you know thick envelopes from London would come to the office and and I would sit in the tri shop in Penang reading the letters oh, oh. in those days yes you know romantic about letters that take a long time and it's 20 pages yeah. that arrives yeah. compared to email or whatsapp it's different isn't it yeah yeah, it's so short. And, you know, we had long letters, 20 pages, because he would draw, illustrate what London looked like on a certain day. And then, um, you know, and I still keep the letters somewhere in my house under the bed. <laughs> Yeah, and then of course I came here because I was I was on no pay leave, but I was very lucky because within three months I got myself a job as a temporary with the BBC Malay service. You know, I was sorry, I was working then as a clerk with the Indonesian service of the BBC World Service, and from there 
during that time, uh, dealing with letters from uh, Indonesian listeners, I was trained to read the news in the Malay section of the BBC. So I stayed there for about 10 years, 10 or 11 years, and I was promoted to be the uh, program uh to, to be the head of the Malay section. And then I uh, stayed on there until 1991 when they, they closed down the section. Now, you, uh, th- your, your career as a journalist is very interesting you've, because you've straddled the big changes in media. You started as a mm-hmm. journalist in your 20s using a typewriter. Now, <laughs> at 60, you're embracing new technology. Um, can you tell mm-hmm. us about you know, what it's like working in the media in a constantly changing landscape? Okay. I remember when I started, it was the Remington. <laughs> you know the Remington. <laughs> so you know you have to push hard the the bar to to start uh, typing, and then mistakes are all like uh, cross 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 and all that. You can't afford to make mistakes. Um, and uh, yeah, we started with that, and you have to take your your um, reporter's notebook to 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 write your notes. You have to learn very fast to get to 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 listen to the facts, you know, as you do your interviews. And the best training ground as a young reporter would be the courtroom because you have to listen carefully every word that the judge said, that the accused said, that the lawyer said, because you are not allowed to use a tape recorder. Unlike now, you can bring in your your um, laptop in the courtroom before you can't. But that was a very good training ground for us, you know. And then, of course, um, journalism and technology change and all that. We were sending stories by fax. Uh, and then uh, I remember in those days in the small office in Penang, when we typed out our stories, we would have to queue up behind this teleprinter. He would get our stories and type it again and that would go to to the head office in Kuala Lumpur. Time has really changed. Yes, you know. so it's quite different, yeah. all the different processes. Yeah. So then you uh, worked at the BBC and you uh, yeah. were working yeah. in radio, so you had to learn that technology. Yes, when I was at BBC, we were carrying the Ewer. If you know the Ewer, is a it is um, a German-made <laughs> tape recorder, the reel-to-reel. Mm-hmm. It was so heavy that I had to ask my husband to help me to carry this Ewer whenever, <laughs> whenever I went on assignment. And coming back, we'd have to edit. Uh, of course, we would have an editor, but sometimes we edit ourselves. So you were. Uh, you were armed with a blade and a tape, so you cut off what you don't want and throw away everything oh, so that you, you don't want. Physically cut, you know, we, we now say cut and paste. Yes. Physically cut yeah. it. <laughs> yes, with the blade. Yeah, you, you're, you are given your own blade and, and, and tape. So you splice it and then you tape it up again to join up, to join the, the edits, you know? So after that, of course, yeah, times change and all that. And then, um, so the Remington and then the, 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 the tape recorder all changed. And then I started dabbling with television. Mm-hmm. Now, in those days, we had a, a, a TV cameraman c- coming along with us, but it cost a lot of money because one day, a 10-hour working day 
to pay the cameraman would be about 800 pounds. And on top of that, after doing the interviews, after the filming, you go back to the studio, then you pay the editor. So the editing would take about 10, uh, two hours, for example, for a two minute story. And then you go to give it to the um, to the people in charge of the satellite. So the stories will be pumped back to RTM in Malaysia via satellite link. Can you imagine all that? And you you spend a lot of money to send a two-minute two story. story. Yes. So. Yeah. But now things have changed. <laughs> what we do now is um, one day we were uh, we had this assignment where we had to cover a, a motor racer in the um, Donington tracks, Donington uh, uh, race tracks. So we were not allowed to film, but we can we could interview him. So the interview would take only about twenty seconds, thirty seconds. But to use a cameraman, we had to pay him six hundred pounds. So I said, I'm not going to pay him for a two second in a, a twenty second interview. So I went off and bought myself a camera, and I learned the techniques of filming and interviewing and editing. By then. You know, wow. after and how that, you, old were you at that at that point. Oh, maybe about 50. <laughs> 50. And then you feel a sense, you get a sense of freedom because you know what you want to to film. You know what when to cut, when to what to ignore, so that you know it's easier for you to edit. When someone else film, you have to look through the whole footage again and edit, you see. But you have a real sense of freedom then because you can do it, you know. And then I started learning how to edit. And then nowadays, you send everything via FTP. Mm. But it's also, quick. you told me a story about how you recently uh, actually sent a, 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 a video story using just your phone. Yes. Yes, certainly, because um, nowadays with the camera, the quality is very good on the handphone. So, um, for example, when I went to um, Eindhoven, no, Gilda Ryan in, in Holland to film, uh, to capture the, the wreckage, the time difference there would mean that the newspaper in Malaysia would have, uh, will be closing by then, you know, for the day. So in in uh, Gilza Ryan, it was about one o'clock. So I couldn't wait to film and then go back and edit and send everything back. So what I did was take everything on on the using the handphone and send it just like that to the office, and it was used. Wow! And then on yeah, certain stories where you're not allowed to bring in cameras, like for example, the last um, uh, stroke patient that I I did. Uh, at the Charing Cross uh, Hospital, I went in with my handphone and just filmed him, and that that you know created a lot of sympathy. That's what we want in cases like this, and um, the quality was very good. So that's what we use in tenement square. That's what they use as well. You know. Yeah, that's so. As long as you get the visuals. Yeah. Quite inspiring. So over 40 years of your of your journalism career, you've had to learn new technologies and um, yes. and and uh, and really become very skilled and to in order to work fast. Uh, and and so yes. 
you're now 60 something and <laughs> on you're very kind <laughs> yeah well i did all this i had to learn all this to stay relevant in in an industry where things are are changing so fast and you get young people who are dashing here and there which reminded me of me 20, 30 years ago, dashing here and they're doing, not not feeling tired at all, but I must stay relevant. I must do what I have to do. Fantastic. So what advice do you have for women journalists, um, especially the new generation of journalists coming up? Well, I, I think what came to mind when I was thinking about it was um, you must be passionate in whatever you do. You know, I I am very very passionate. I'm I'm a people person. I get a good story about someone, and I stay on as friends with these people. I love stories about people, and um, they remain my friends until now. And um, and don't just ignore a story just because you think it's boring. Because when you look hard enough, you'll find a story. You'll find an interesting angle. I never find anything boring because you will always find something beautiful. Oh, that's a wonderful, wonderful little bit of wisdom for for not just journalists, but for everybody, that there's always something fascinating in anybody's story. Mm. Um, Mm. So where can people find out more about you and your stories and, and the work that you do? Okay. Um, I used to blog and uh, my blog, uh, I have some of my stories in there, which is kate.blogspot.com. It's kate, K-A-K-T-E-H, dot blogspot.com. And also, because most of my stories now go to my column, which is postcard from Zahara in the New Straits Times. So if you Google that, you search postcard from Zahara, or you search Zahra Usman, you will get my stories. Well, that's fantastic. And also, I'll um, I'll do some Googling myself, and I'll put uh, some of these links on the show notes page, and the details of the show notes page will be coming up at the end of this podcast. Mm. Zahra Uthman, what a fascinating, fascinating story of um, your journalistic career and love stories across the, the, the seas. So thank you very much for being on Creative Conversations. Thank you so much, young me. That was Zahara Othman. Her blog is kakte, K-A-K-T-E-H dot blogspot dot com. Or you can simply Google postcards from Zahara, Z-A-H-A-R-A-H. There are photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page. Go to the Creative Conversations podcast site via the bit.ly short link, which is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast and search for season two episode two ccv 0202 love stories across cultures or you can go straight to the show notes page at bit.ly bit.ly forward slash ccv hyphen love across cultures If you've enjoyed this episode of Creative Conversations, I hope you'll help me spread the word. Please share this episode with your friends wherever you share stuff, or you can subscribe to the show or leave us a lovely review on anchor.fm, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All this will help the magic algorithms bring the show to more people. 
Creative Conversations is produced by tigerspirit.co.uk. To find out more about this and other episodes of the Creative Conversations podcast, go to bit.ly bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as at Tiger Spirit UK. Thanks for listening and see you next time.